I'm Zachary Cartwright. This is Water and Food. Today, my guest is Ian Freham at Cafe Imports, where he works as the Director of Sensory Analysis. In addition to working in the Quality Control Lab and processing hundreds of thousands of taste bud signals using his 7th, 9th, and 10th cranial nerves, Ian can also be found preparing, roasting, and cataloging green coffee samples. In this episode, Ian discusses his long-term observational study on water activity in specialty green coffee, as well as some new updates and insights since completing the study in 2019. Let's hear what Ian has to say on this episode of Water and Food. Ian, I I recently came across your long-term observational study on on water activity, and I thought you'd be a great guest uh, for this show. And and I was just wondering, where did your passion for coffee come from? Uh, You know, my passion for coffee really, I wouldn't even call it necessarily a passion. It's more of like, uh, uh, I was, I was prepped maybe by some teachers and, uh, some of the study that I'd done as a, call it as a youngster, uh, in, in Buddhism where I was really looking at details and quieting down and, and being an observer. Um, and as I got this entry level job at Cafe Imports. Um, I was fortunate enough to have some some really great instruction uh, from from the original people, you know, setting up Cafe Imports, and they kind of turned me on to where I could be applying all this nearly useless <laughs> training that I had done um, in a professional setting, which which was really great. And so that that uh, in turn kind of sparked my interest, and then it's just snowballed from there. And I, I see that you were ordained as a Buddhist priest, and, and you just uh, brought that up a little. But how did that experience, how did that help you prepare for your, your current role at Cafe Imports? Yeah, that's right. So um, before coming to Imports, and, and as I, especially the first uh, first half of my career, I was, I was fairly heavily involved uh, in, in Zen Buddhism. And uh, uh, before Imports, I was actually very heavily involved in Zen Buddhism. And am ordained as a priest and the uh the specific school that i was trained in uh has a lot of liturgy and a lot of meditation and not a lot of instruction and so the expectation is uh, at least in in more uh traditional and kind of rigorous settings that that i've spent my time in the expectation is that you just observe and kind of pick it up and um learn as you go and a lot of what you're doing is everything is choreographed so it's really frustrating and inane and it's like oh man incense stick needs to be 90 degrees not 87 degrees and all these little details and you just learn to start observing them and appreciating them and uh you know maybe the end goal is a little bit different than what you might do in a sensory lab or in a sample room. Uh, but the underlying training is details matter, uh, details matter, and details matter. So stepping into the sample room where typos is a problem, dropping a reference number is a huge issue, um, you know, getting lazy about the difference between this coffee flavor and this coffee flavor has huge ramifications for you know the person that you're uh potentially buying that coffee from uh so the uh, the uh crossover from the buddhist training into into the sample room i mean it's not essential right we've got 
some great people in our uh, sensory sensory uh, program, and I'm the only Buddhist one. Uh, <laughs> but cer- certainly, there was some translation that was that was really helpful and kind of set me up for some su- some success here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure it was really helpful to learn to be able to kind of block other things out and really focus on the present and, and looking at what yeah. flavors or aromas you're getting. So that's really interesting that that, that was able to help you. And so now you're in, you're in charge of sensory analysis of cafe it's, imports, or, or what is your title? Yeah, so my title is Director of Sensory Analysis. Um, mm. Cafe Imports uh, is an importer. Um, we have our main office here in Minneapolis, and then we've got um, satellite offices in Berlin, Melbourne, and San Jose uh, in Costa Rica. Uh, and so my job encompasses uh, the sensory, the cupping that occurs in all of those, as well as the organization uh, of of the sample room. So sample reception, uh, making sure that systems are in place to uh, maintain the integrity of the of the uh, uh, chain of custody, I guess would be the, the best phrase for that. And how many fresh samples are, are you going through every year? Yeah, so um, we will be looking at roughly 6,000 fresh samples a year. Um, you know, when you, when you market beginning of the calendar year, end of the calendar year, you're straddling harvest seasons. Mm-hmm. And so if one season pushes a little late and one comes a little bit early, you could, we could see seven to 8,000 in a, in a single calendar year. But roughly, I would say about six thousand, you know, in a adjusted harvest year. And you're looking at all all six thousand of those samples. You're looking at doing the sensory analysis and, and making notes on. Yes. Yep. Uh, everything wow. gets run through physical analysis, uh, which includes water activity, uh, color, mm-hmm. shape, and size assessment, moisture content, density. Uh, everything gets sensory analysis, which is. Uh, through our cupping program, everything is, of course, roasted and then has a further physical analysis of the of the roasted coffee. Uh, so it's it's a it's a pretty intensive uh, life cycle for for a <laughs> humble little coffee sample. And the the sensory analysis is this with a, an internal panel that you work with, or do you ever do any like consumer testing with a, a larger group of people? Yeah. yeah so this is um, we are we're uh b2b business to business right so we're an Mm -hmm. importer we're uh selling to roasters so we're not we're not really working directly with uh coffee drinkers of the of the world uh so our sensory is is all internal it's descriptive uh so i I have to assume that people listening here will kind of have some understanding of the the difference in sensory uh sensory science between descriptive analysis and uh call it effective or, or preference testing and uh, really what fits for us largely is a more analytic or descriptive bent to, uh, to the sensory program. Um, and besides going through all these samples, what, what else makes Cafe Imports stand out um, among other companies that are doing something similar? Yeah, so uh, a, lot of, a lot of, I guess, what would be our competitors are, are <laughs> truly massive companies uh, in, in, on this planet. And, you know, we are, for lack of a better term, we're kind of a mom and pop when it comes to uh, importers and and particular importers of our size and our volume. Um, We came in at a pretty neat time. This was prior to 
prior to really anyone or very many people thinking about what's coffee, where did coffee come from? Um, we came into the scene and that just wasn't there. And we started importing someone's coffee, right? So that was one of the big things like, oh, this isn't just commodity. This isn't just a nice commodity. This is somebody's work product. And um, we're, we had, we did that at the right time. We got traction with that. And uh, that's, we've stayed true to that, you know, for this, all these decades, right? 30 years, 35 years later, we've, we've stayed true to recognizing again and again, this is somebody's coffee. This is somebody's hard work. Um, and now as a, as a, as a company, we've got maybe 70, 75 employees, I think. And uh, I, I think we're also true to that internally. So we recognize that um, everyone in the company is doing hard work and finding ways to, you know, we really try to find ways to make sure that uh, our hard work is, is kind of holding up our end of the bargain as we're uh, trying to buy coffee from people and then also then turn around and try to sell it to other people. So it sounds like a, a great place to work and uh, to be. Uh, I, I noticed that you also have a certificate in, in sensory analysis or, or something like that from UC Davis. So I was hoping you could talk about that experience. Experience. Did that happen after you became ordained or where, where in your journey did that mm -hmm. happen? And, and how did that help you uh, get to where you are now? Yeah, so uh, I do. I have a, uh, a, call it a professional certificate in uh, consumer and sensory science from the University of California, Davis. Uh, um, that happened after I was ordained. Excuse me. Um, and uh, that came about, I went to a, a weekend workshop uh, that was hosted by someone from Davis. And she uh, mentioned this program was starting up. And so uh, I went back and basically watched for the watch for it to come live when I could sign up, got myself involved. And um, since then, it has uh, it has really gone a long way to change how I approach things and how I understand things. You know, prior to that, I was a bit of an autodidact with regard to sensory science and, you know, just um, reading textbooks and um, self-study with with all that stuff and uh, getting some direction, doing some coursework, uh, seeing how it's applied technically within the field, within context was really helpful uh, in some ways, kind of like tempering my, you know, more hardline. It needs to be like this. It needs to be like that kind of views opened up this idea like, Oh, sensory scientists can be pretty pragmatic actually with regard to um making sure the systems that they develop have applicability, uh, have adoption, right? You could create a perfect sensory science testing environment, but if it, if no one's going to adopt it, then it's not that perfect, right? You, you need to meet your client. In our case, our company is, we're our own client as I'm administering the sensory program internally. Uh, but you need to figure out where your client is, uh, what the realities of their uh, business or, or sensory situation really are. And, and then it's your job, you know, as the, as the sensory scientist or the sensory admin person to uh, devise the best possible test uh, given the realities of, of where this, where your client actually is.
Right. So and, everyone, everyone wants to have a descriptive panel with 20 to 30 people and mm -hmm. close end testing where you get to spend two weeks on the same 10 coffees or whatever. But it's just like uh, in, in our lab, we don't, we can't, uh, we can't spend that kind of time on the same coffees. You know, we have new coffees that come in every single day and we need to figure out ways to cycle through those, but still actually pay attention to every single coffee that comes through. Um, and of course, in a company of whatever it is here, 75 people, we're not quite at the level where we can allocate uh, 20 or so of those positions just to tasting, tasting coffee every day. Since you're going through so many samples and, and you're doing this every day, every week, what things do you do to prevent uh, fatigue? How do you stay at your sharpest and how do you know that you're uh, being able to analyze these, these samples correctly without getting maybe too tired and, and doing too many? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a big challenge, and especially now as uh, as both myself and uh, my lab manager, uh, we've been working together for uh, twelve years now, eleven or twelve years now. And uh, when we started, we were doing far fewer samples, and uh, now as we hire new people and onboard them into into the cupping lab, we really have to step back and remember uh, we've had you know over a decade of acclimation and kind of uh, organically building our ability to deal with this many samples and deal with this much caffeine and this much coffee. Uh, and it's like really <laughs> dropping people into the deep end when they, when they come <laughs> into the lab. Uh, so a big thing that we do that I've really been focused on as we've continued to scale and, and see more samples and also want to do a better job with, um say attending to those samples um a big thing that i've been focused on is refining our test procedure right so there are there's a big list of common sensory errors and there's physiological ones and there's psychological ones and these are not like good cup or bad cup or um errors these are more like the troubleshooting manual for being a human sensory uh tester and so uh, if you're at the table, it's kind of already a little bit too late, right? For most of these sensory errors, you need to design them into your test protocol uh, in a way that assumes that they're gonna happen and then uh, controls for their impact when you're looking at what the output uh, of, of a days or a weeks or a months or a year's cupping is, is gonna be. So um, a lot of a lot of my focus has been there actually on refining uh, the testing protocols that we're using uh, to minimize and uh, control for some of these more common errors, including things like simple palate fatigue. Right? They get more complex than that, but that's an easy one. You get tired. Um, yeah. And, and talking about you know setting up studies and, and protocols, you released a study in, in 2019 that was a long-term observational study on water activity and, and specialty green mm -hmm. coffee. What, where did the idea for this come from? Why, why did you want to investigate this further? Yeah, I had had some conversations uh, with a couple of a couple of people who I in coffee that I had really respected, um, and had just done a little poking around, and it became pretty clear, you know, in uh, I guess we probably started this in 2014 or 15 is maybe when we started looking at the uh, taking water activity measurements and really digging in. 
And, you know, at that point, obviously, um, if you looked at, I don't know, any other food industry that sector that dealt with food safety, uh, they were using water activity, right? Like if you looked at anyone who had a, um, any kind of process control in a system, uh, water activity was involved. And it, there, this is not a unique situation for especially coffee where like literally everyone else in the entire universe is doing something and we're kind of doing our own thing until someone looks and says, oh, well, look, we're using moisture content to do every to do something that everyone else is using water activity to do. Maybe we should look into that. Maybe we should explore explore that. So that's really where that came from. It just came from looking around for a minute and realizing that we were kind of missing the boat uh, on water activity and misusing uh, moisture content. And how did you go about collecting data? What what equipment or technologies uh, were you using for that? Yeah, so we got a uh, we got a water activity meter. Uh, it's called a four te duo. Um, really neat little piece of technology. Not uh, not the fastest thing in the world, right? So you calibrate it, throw your sample in, and if you're lucky, you'd get it out in five minutes. If you were less lucky, 10, 15, or 20 minutes later, you'd get your beeps and you'd get your sample. And uh, even even when we started, we were still doing 5,000 samples a year. And so um, our entire workflow is set up for efficiency. And this water activity meter, especially especially the, uh, the uh, Duo, was a bit of a bottleneck. So we kind of worked out a post-processing uh, phase where we would take all the water activity and we just had this uh, sample queue that would grow and uh, contract and expand as 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 we had time to get stuff through. Um, over the years, we had interns uh, maybe spending the summer with us and we could guarantee they were going to get a good chunk of time spent uh, sitting at the desk and running samples through, recording them. You know, we keep a, keep a, a spreadsheet at the time just take down the reference number, take down the water activity reading, double check the numbers, move on to the next one, over and over and over and over <laughs> again. What, what was your sample preparation like? Were you breaking open the samples at all or are you just putting full samples in? What, what did that uh, process look like? Um, so uh, I'm not sure if I quite quite follow. I mean, we get, so we get sampled uh, is this record? Is this like a visual? Is there an actual visual component? There may, to this? Yeah, there may be a visual to this. We can, so you can show it on your screen if you'd like to. Yeah, so we get a little sample that bag looks like this. If mm -hmm. it were this full, this would be a great one. This is maybe uh, just a little bit under a pound right there. Normally, we'd get maybe 350 grams. Mm -hmm. uh, the duo would take, uh, I don't know, 10 or 20 grams of green coffee. So we just drop the beans in a little sample cup and put it in and, and seal it up and press the go button, basically. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm asking that is, uh, you know, most readings shouldn't really take longer than five minutes. And, and some of that, can mm -hmm. you can overcome it with the way you prep the sample. If you cut the I interior see. so that the, the equilibrium uh, happens faster. And, and so I was just a little surprised about the, the time that you read. But if you weren't cutting it open, um, this could, could cause it to, to go longer. And it also kind of depends on the cleaning protocol and, and those types of things. Uh, so I was just curious about how 
how those samples were going gotcha. inside the chamber. Um, what what were some of gotcha. the correlations that you found? What what did you find from this study? Yep. So, uh, let's see. We found that uh, within the product green coffee, um, uh, I, well, we essentially created recreated the uh, uh, isotherm, right? Water activity, moisture content. We found there was a relationship. Uh, we found that it was not perfect. Uh, we found that um, it was, you know, mild, we'd say like mildly predictive, you know, give or take. Um, we found that, uh, how do I put this? We were, you know, we were hoping to find a silver bullet with water activity, right? Yeah. Unrealistic, right? Similar when I was a kid, before I went snowshoeing for the first time, I had it in my mind that I was going to levitate three inches above the snow. <laughs> and then I realized that I was still like trampling through the snow. And it's like, well, that's a, I'm disappointed, but it was an unrealistic expectation. Um, what happened was we realized that our, our initial expectation was unrealistic, but we were taking this data and we were finding that the correlation to moisture content was not perfect. And of course, everyone was still using moisture content to do things that water activity was actually the direct control for. You know, so we're talking about um, lipid oxidation, we're talking about mold, we're talking about, you know, um, storage, warehouse control, that kind of stuff. And so uh, we decided to continue, keep going, and um, kind of pivoted our goal to really uh, unpacking the relationship between the two measurements um, and and seeing what, what else we could find within water activity. So most of the stuff that we found within water activity, most of the correlations uh, still matched up with uh, moisture content, mm -hmm. um, but with, I would say, a lot, you know, a, a greater level of precision, right, in moisture content. Ultimately, you're going to have to say you're going to have to use a larger plus or minus uh, with any statement that you want to make about it. Um, less so, less so with water activity. And so, uh, now I kind of describe water activity as sort of a ground truth measurement, right? So, if you're training an autonomous vehicle and you've got cameras and ultrasonics and radars and lidars trying to measure everything, that's really great. But you need to have some crazy system and i don't want to mischaracterize water activity but you need to have a you need to have a robust uh highly tuned accurate system that you can measure everything off of right so uh that would be the ground truth and in a lot of ways we still take water activity on every sample that comes through uh even if we're no longer uh rigorously pursuing new information from it we're still measuring it and Every time I get a question back from a, a uh, customer of ours or a coffee supplier with regard to quality or with regard to, hey, I think this moisture content is too high or what happened to this coffee, water activity is still probably the first thing I go into the spreadsheet and look for is, okay, well, mm -hmm. what was the water activity when we first saw it? What happened to it a month later? You know, how did, how is, what's the story that unfolded with, with the water activity? Did it make sense what I'm hearing about the moisture content, right? So sometimes uh, someone will come and say, well, I think your moisture content meter is broken. And I'll say, well, I'll 
that's quite possible. I mean, moisture content meters are using formulas, they're using algorithms. They have different, mm -hmm. they, they measure differently. Very few people are actually using the oven method. I mean, we're not, we're not using the oven method to take moisture content. Uh, but then I'll go back and look. And uh, because of having this history of water activity um, and this understanding of the, the general correlation, um, it, it makes us very comfortable with regard to, oh, our moisture content reading does make sense. It is uh, tracking uh, not just with what we're observing in the coffee, but it's tracking with where we expect it to be with regard to what we've read uh, this many times on, on the water activity set. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you said, you know, you, you tried to correlate water activity and moisture content, and you kind of got an isotherm, but it, it maybe wasn't as smooth as you were hoping. And, and I think some of that comes from the inherent variability in, in whatever moisture content method you use. Yeah. There are some newer isotherm technologies like the, the dynamic dew point isotherm that uses a, a dew point measurement for the water activity, just like your 4TE duo. Um, but then it, it looks at weight change and uses a, a, a starting initial moisture content to calculate based on weight change back to moisture. And this can actually allow you yeah. to get a, a really smooth curve. And, and I have one later that I'll, I'll send to you because I, I think that would be okay. kind of helpful and, and insightful to you. Uh, a few okay. things that Please. stood out to me in, in your study, I, I noticed that you mentioned that there was a correlation between water activity and, and Maillard browning reactions and that you know higher water activities led to increased uh, browning. And we see that in, in lots of other products as well, but I, I thought that was interesting. And then you also recommended some storage conditions uh, for green coffee. And I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. What, what are the storage conditions that you recommend? Yeah, so uh, let's see. Oh, we'll circle back maybe to the, the Maillard stuff because that's, that's sure. kind of an interesting thing. And it, it's actually a question that I'm going to have, I have for you that I'd like to get, <laughs> I'd like to get some clarification on. Uh, but sure. storage conditions, one of the things that was really fascinating to me uh, that I, I didn't know coming in was uh, the uh, relationship between relative humidity and water activity number. Mm -hmm. um, if I've understood this correctly, 60% relative humidity is 0. 0.6000 mm -hmm. water activity. Um, so that, that, was, that was a great kind of aha, like, ooh, it's pretty simple, but... Until you know it, you don't know it. You don't realize it. Right. And everyone, you know, you, you, you've got, how do you store coffee? Well, keep it dry, keep it cool, uh, keep it clean. This is, none of that is new, but introducing, um, introducing water activity measurement, understanding that water activity uh, is uh, dependent on or is tied to temperature. So your measurements are, your, your carrying capacity, just like relative humidity, your carrying capacity is tied to temperature. Uh, realizing that these things are all knit together and interconnected and are not just um, old rules of thumb are, uh, I think that was, I think that was a, a bit of a turning point or a, a bit of an insight for us with regard to storage. So uh, with that being said, what we've measured in specialty coffee is that um, call it 0 0.6100 seems to be a critical level for specialty green coffee. Um, above that, we're going to start to see uh, 
from an observational perspective, we're going to start to see all of the water activity controlled reactions really ramp up. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think green coffee is particularly unique in that in that regard. Um, below that, I think we start to see a little bit more a little bit more stability. Uh, and so, while we're not going to try to store coffee in a thirty percent humidity environment, um, we're going to we're definitely going to try to keep it down below 60 in maybe in that 60 and 50% range uh, with uh, sub 70 Fahrenheit type temperatures. Um, a little, a little twist that has been also of interest is that uh, over the course of this study, um, a technology or a, a bagging protocol called grain pro came strongly online in the coffee world. It already existed of course, but uh, it went from being fairly common to being pretty much almost every lot is 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 grain pro at this point. Um, and you know, grain pro is a just a big plastic bag essentially, and it does a fantastic job of uh, excluding uh, that environmental moisture or humidity from interacting with the coffee. Now, there's some question about you know if you pack too wet of a coffee or too active of a coffee uh, in a grain pro bag, and then you subject it to temperature swings because grain pro will not protect against temperature swings. Um, at that point, then uh, you might still have some stuff to look at with regard to uh, coffee respiration and then condensation inside the bag and then adsorption and, and all kinds of neat stuff like that. Yeah, um, I'd be really interested to know the the water vapor transmission rate of those bags because if if we knew that we could actually investigate and run some simulations and under different conditions understand if the water activity is is going to shift around or not or the temperature like you mentioned you know if, if this sits somewhere where the temperature is higher then the water activity is going to increase uh, but that's something that's actually really predictable and, and uh, possibly we can look more into that uh, in the future. Yeah. And I just wanted to add on, I, I think the aha moment that you have where, you know, the relative humidity is the water activity. A lot of people have this, um, you know, there are certain industries where we primarily talk in terms of relative humidity, especially in like pharmaceuticals, for example, okay. because it just huh. makes better sense to them. That's what they're used to. But you're exactly right. Any food sample, whether it's coffee or something else, it has its own relative humidity. So when we put it in a closed chamber, it creates a relative humidity in that space. And when it comes to storage, I, I think it's important to understand that the food sample wants to come to equilibrium with the surrounding environment. So if you set it at a, an environment that is 60% relative humidity, even if the coffee sample is higher in water activity, if you give it enough time, it will slowly come to equilibrium and settle at, at 0.6. And so I think that's really important to your industry and, and lots of industries when we think about how to store things and what our target uh, water activities are. Yeah. Um, can I ask you a question? Uh, of course. This has to do with uh, this has to do with Maillard. So water okay. activity uh, is a controller of Maillard uh, spoilage. So. Mm -hmm. uh, as I've understood that, uh, we're going to talk about room temperature or mm -hmm. relatively room temperature browning reactions that are going to occur non-enzymatically uh, via um, 
well, I, I, I don't know via what, <laughs> but I know that <laughs> uh, uh, this Maillard spoiler, spoilage is, is uh, controlled by water activity. And mm-hmm. in coffee, we roast coffee. And mm-hmm. just like baking bread or just like searing a steak, uh, we have non-enzymatic Maillard browning. Um, I think a number of people, and I'm not sure if they're the one, I don't think they're the ones who are correct, but maybe they are. And maybe I'm going to learn something here. I think a number of people have have taken one-to-one uh, the browning that occurs in cooking or roasting and the browning that occurs in Maillard spoilage as as being the same. Um, I've thought that it is not the same just because of the kind of radical or violent amount of heat that is thrown at coffee or bread while baking or roasting where you know, in coffee, we've got, you drop a coffee into the roaster at 12% moisture, 0.6000 water activity. And the first phase is it dries out. And if you then take the coffee out of the roaster, you know, at the point where it's dry, it's it's not started my art, it's still green, but mm-hmm. fairly green. It's like faded out. If you take it out, let it cool, come to room temp, take another moisture and water activity reading, there's not any moisture left and there's not any water activity left. And so it's hard for me to see how a coffee that starts green with a higher water activity is going to do anything differently in a roaster than a coffee that starts green with a slightly lower water activity, apart from uh, requiring a little bit more energy to dry the moisture out of the coffee. Right. I, I don't see a, a big difference with your starting water activity. I, I think that the browning that we're getting, especially from the heat exposure, is really different than if we sit something out and allow those reactions to happen over time. Um, where water activity really comes into play with browning reactions is that browning reaction rates are affected by the water activity level. So if we go really low in water activity, there's not much water available to help constituents or different uh, chemicals to come together and, and go through those browning reactions. As we start yeah. to add water activity, usually up to about a, a 0.6 range, this is really optimal for Maillard reactions because now you're allowing some fluidity and some movement so that these things can react and brown. But if we went even higher in water activity, then you start to dilute, and this is when reactions slow down again. So a, a lot of reaction okay. rates beyond just browning, you know, lipid oxidation or degradation yep. of certain constituents. These are also affected uh, by water activity, but browning especially has been really well-defined and it makes sense yeah. that you, you the, the observations that you made. But again, I think that the, the browning that we see from the heating uh, versus just sitting there and spoilage or, or just sitting out are, are gonna be two different processes. Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for verifying. Thanks for <laughs> verifying that. It's actually a... a strange thing to try to you know open up google scholar and try to keyword papers to (laughs) talk about this specific very specific different you can read a lot about myard spoilage Mm -hmm. and you can read a lot about uh uh heat applied browning um but strangely challenging to find someone just flat out talking about both simultaneously, this is what one is, and this is what the other is. Mm-hmm. This is why they are or are not the same. 
And, and maybe if somebody listening to this happens to be doing a study or knows about more about this, uh, we'd be happy to learn about it. So yeah. maybe this will uh, result in a, a clear answer. Um, since you finished that study, have you continued to do any research? Or are there any new observations that you've come up with uh, since you released that study? Yeah, I mean, like I said, we have continued to take our water activity readings. Uh, we continue to reference them and use them um, sort of as the one of the first places that we go. Um, we're not currently doing any, any direct study with regard to uh, water activity or anything new. It's it's one of the automatic kind of like uh, included in the query. If you're going to run a, you're going to run a ANOVA or something like that. It's like, well, we're just going to throw water activity in as a variable because we have it and uh, it is more direct than, than moisture content. Um, so it's kind of, I guess from us, it's, it's transitioned from like the uh, shiny object to the, <laughs> sort of like a, the solid foundation or the baseline that we're just comfortable uh, standing on, right? So the, the reality is that transition is, is, I would say, really powerful and really um, speaks highly of what we found uh, the place of water activity to be. But it also, it also kind of means that, uh, well, it's not the shiny object so much anymore. And so uh, a lot of our active attention and active digging and research ends up going elsewhere. And, and where would you like to see more research when it comes to coffee? And it, it could do, be do with, uh, have to do with water activity or, or maybe something else. Where would you like to yeah. see more research emphasized? Yeah, you know, um, there, there are a handful of places. One of these, uh, which is somewhat related to, which is related to water activity is so, uh, as, as mentioned in the, uh, in the, paper and that study that I, that I wrote, um, we in coffee in particular have the shipment period and I will say the dreaded shipment period. So we receive samples from suppliers, uh, coffee growers, coffee exporters, co-ops, et cetera. And we, you know, sample is, if we're lucky, it's this big and this could represent one full-size coffee bag or it could represent a full container load. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to assess that sample physically, um, sensorily, uh, and we're going to cross our fingers and hope that that assessment has anything to do with the arrival. And the arrival, of course, happens after the shipment period, which could be, you know, it could be a month. If it goes perfectly, more likely it's three months, and it could be eight months, right? It could be, it would have been five months, but it got stuck in port on the exit for a month, and then it got stuck in port entering the country for a month, and then there was a strike, and eight months later, here it is. And huge chunks of that time frame were spent, you know, cooking at sea level in you know, in the bottom of a container ship or sitting in the sun on the back of a train or a truck, you know, the shipment period is this, is this big black box that transforms coffee, even in grain pro, mm -hmm. even in reefer containers. Um, scores change, of course, sensory profiles change, of course, but 
Um, moisture content can change over that time period. Density can change over that time period. Uh, water activity changes over that time period. Or it's not so much that it changes, it's just that the sample was not truly fully representative of, of the whole. Um, that differentiation is, is a big, that's a big challenge, right? That's the thing that we were initially, naively I would say, but initially hoping water activity would really uh, give us greater insight into. So and, anyone and who can like solve the, that. Kind of like the packaging that, that we talked about earlier, there, there are some simulations that you could do and, and kind of understand at least how water activity may be moving down at, at, or around at different parts of the, the shipment process. And that may sure. be helpful to you. Uh, I'll reach out again and, and maybe see if we okay. can uh, look at that further. What, what, what's Wonderful. next uh, for you, Ian? What, what's uh, these, the, the next year or maybe next five years look like for you at Cafe Imports? Yeah, so uh, all all year this year, and actually just starting uh, say a little bit prior to uh, COVID, so end of 2019 or somewhere in 2019, uh, I started working on what has been a very exciting project, um, uh, reaching back to the, the question about the sensory certificate from Davis, um, started working on a update to our cupping protocol and our cupping form, which just this year, we started using live internally in our in our cupping lab, uh, actually in our cupping labs globally, and have started being able to introduce uh, at conventions and shows and out out to the world. And so, uh, what we've done is taken a uh, check all that apply uh, format, a kata format, and we have um, so. A kata format is essentially a list of descriptive terminology. It could be descriptive, it could be affective, it could be both. Uh, and the user is asked to taste, in our case, some coffee. And they look at this list and they just check the things that apply. So taste the coffee, look at the list, it says chocolate, I agree. You check chocolate and you move on. If the list says lime and you don't agree, you just don't check it. And at the end of the day, you've got this list of things from people, and you see what matched up, and there's different ways you can analyze that. Uh, kata is a really fascinating approach because of its sort of hybrid nature, uh, because it is very easy to get into and utilize. Uh, but after a while, it was discovered that you could give a kata form, curate what's on it, and you could give a kata form to train sensory panels and you could use it as a proxy for uh, a more rigorous descriptive analysis uh, regimen. And so suddenly that makes Kata a really interesting place to be where you have a, a very low barrier of entry, very easy to pick up and learn, uh, but you have a really long usage runway in terms of what you could extract from its use. And so, um, the problem with kata is that it's confined to a list. And so if you want to have, if you've ever read a coffee, if you've gone to the grocery store and picked up a coffee bag or gone to a shop and you've read the description, you know that in, in specialty coffee, we, we, get, uh, we get a little funny with our coffee descriptions. We have <laughs> a, little a high level, yeah. <laughs> a little extravagant. Yes. We'll call it a high level of resolution. And if you want to think of any fancy coffee description and then extrapolate, okay, what would the list, what would the kata list have <laughs> to include to fairly include some of this terminology? The list 
would be massive. Um, mm -hmm. The longer the list gets, the higher the resolution gets, the less usable uh, the kata form becomes. The, the more you restrict the list, uh, the more usable the form becomes, but the less resolution you have. So what we've done is uh, taken a flavor wheel, uh, which is a tiered structure of, uh, it's, a, it's a big wheel, it's a sunburst chart uh, that has tiers and category kind of like pie slices. And we've structured it so that uh, you can take something like, let's call it cooked blackberry. Now, cooked blackberry is a very complex compound term. Uh, it comprises a fruit category. It comprises sort of a qualifier cooked. It, it comprises a type of cooked fruit that's berry, and then a specific that's blackberry. So what we've done is we've tiered a flavor wheel to include each of those uh, building blocks and programmed it into, uh, into a tablet. Uh, so that the user can, instead of having to scan a list and say, well, it's not just fruit, eh, it's not, not cooked berry. It is, but it's more than cooked berry. And then scan, 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 where's cooked blackberry? There it is. Um, similar to transitioning from a spreadsheet to a database where you're gonna eliminate all the redundant entries, uh, this flavor wheel, because it's set up with building blocks, allows users to build out cooked blackberry or cooked raspberry or uh, fresh citrus or fresh orange uh, without having all of this terminology repeated every single time. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting, I'm excited about it. It's a really fun project for us. In any case, we've got this kata form that is dynamic. It's structured on a flavor wheel. The flavor wheel um, contains, I, I, I did this once, it's like six or seven pages, two columns, 12 point font single spaced of terminology, right? Like the, there's a huge, there's way too much on there, but it fits <laughs> and it's all logically uh, easy to find because you're building from big to little. Um, and then the kicker here is that, uh, you know, you tap on something, you tap on fruit and the wheel spins around and the fruit category opens up and everything else contracts and you can see what you're doing and you can easily find what you're looking for. The kicker is on a normal kata form, you circle or check uh, the thing that you want to endorse. That, that's what it's called when you're going to enter or indicate something, you endorse it. On ours, uh, you enter your thing, so fruit, uh, cooked, berry, blackberry, and then to endorse it, you indicate an intensity. Mm -hmm. And by indicating an intensity, um, that puts us back into the realm of uh, it's soft, but puts us back into the realm of descriptive analysis as opposed to um, uh, a preference or effective uh, assessment, right? So we're still focused on, okay, I'm tasting cooked blackberry and I'm tasting it at this intensity relative actually to a generic reference coffee that we're using on every table. Uh, so this has been the project. We, we call this thing the coffee rose uh, the software it's a software product that we're working on uh we've been using it internally it's 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 super fun to use and the output is is great um it captures everything I, I no longer have typos or dropped words or things that i just can't read when i'm looking at paper forms i have this complete capture of everything um the scoring is programmed into it right so 
in coffee, we score coffee. We describe them with words, but we also give them scores. This is also a weird and interesting thing because uh, coffee score is an interpretation. And so for most coffee scoring protocols, so if you're reading a paper, anyone out listening to this, if you're reading a paper about a study done in coffee and you get to methods and materials and they say they use the, I'm not going to, I'm just, I'll say it like this. If they say that they use the standard industry protocol or the legacy cupping protocol, um, what's really important to know about that is that that protocol is presented as if it were descriptive, but in fact, it is uh, effective. The questions are all set up around, do you think this is good or not? Um, if you look, yeah, so you look at a, you look at a publication, you look at methods and materials, it uses the traditional uh, uh, cupping format. Uh, the first thing you need to know is, is that that is actually an effective test, not a descriptive test. So it's not measuring coffee, it's measuring the person's response to mm -hmm. the coffee. Mm -hmm. um, and that right at the baseline kind of it throws a red flag. I actually made a parenthetical in the water activity paper, um, which I didn't realize this in advance. It came up as I was working on the paper was that actually the cupping output that most of us use uh, or that, I mean, we've been using, uh, we, we, I built a, a quantitative descriptive analysis form in 2017 that we transitioned to, but prior to that, the, the legacy cupping protocols that most people are using are um, really not suitable for this type of analysis that we might want to do, right? We're going to do a longitudinal study tracking um, quality degradation in coffee. Uh, the legacy protocols are not suitable. They're suitable for preference. You know, do people like this over time? Do people like this or that? That's fine. But in terms of actually talking about what's going on with the coffee, uh, those are no longer, they're not really applicable to that. Uh, the rose, I think, is applicable to that. Uh, we have, oh, this is what I lost my train of thought on. We have scoring built in to each of the things. So if you think of a sunburst chart, uh, there's all these descriptors on there, and each one is a button. Press the button, and you tell the rose something. There's a value associated with that button. Uh, what that means is that if I'm in a very good mood on Monday morning, and I'm tasting a coffee, and I taste juicy mango, <laughs> I'm going to enter that, and it's going to have the same value as on Thursday when I'm crabby, and I taste juicy mango, it's going to be the same. It's going to mm -hmm. be the same. So when you tender a coffee sample to me, now suddenly, uh, as long as I can kind of like zen myself up and be focused at, at, on the task at hand and say, yep, juicy mango, juicy mango, it's always going to be, it's always going to have the same value. There's no room for interpretation. There's no ask for me to do interpretation at the table, right? We're just describing what we're tasting and then the system itself does the interpretation after the fact. So there you go. That's the project. That's the next year. <laughs> I think that's the next five years, uh, mm -hmm. building this thing out, uh, making it available to uh, our customers and, and, you know, anyone who's interested in actually using it. I think, uh, I think there's great potential for people to, to, to gain a lot from this and for, uh, certainly for cupping programs uh, to gain a lot from this. We've built in a lot of, uh, a lot of the kind of nitty gritty, less sexy sensory protocols uh, 
are built right into the the workflow of, of the system. So, yeah, it, it sounds really interesting and and really helpful and re- user friendly. I'm, I'm more familiar with like the the wine aroma wheel, but I, I think the way okay. that you've set this yeah. up makes it really helpful for somebody who who has to go through this. So I I'd be really interested yes. to see it in action. Uh, kind of yes. my last question, I, I generally ask um, about any open positions at your company. I I saw here that you recently filled several positions, but but maybe I'll word yes. it like this. If anybody is listening and they're really interested in sensory analysis, uh, especially the sensory analysis of, of coffee, what what do you recommend to them? What what can they do uh, to get better trained or, or prepare themselves for a, a career like yours? Sure. Yeah. So um, you know you can certainly you can check out the the sensory science program at at Davis. Um, I will say that sensory science is. Just like water activity, it's not a it's not a silver bullet. It's not a panacea. Uh, if, if I think if sensory science had its way, it would kind of like absorb specialty coffee in this Borg-like, uh, flavorless, dull, boring world where you no longer have beautiful coffees. And so you know, don't don't go whole hog there. But certainly, um, a great avenue would be to explore sensory science as a discipline, as a as a as a standalone field. Uh, and then within the coffee side, um, definitely keep your eye on our website, our socials, all of that. Um, we are, I mean, Cafe Imports is, remains an uh, exciting and dynamic uh, business. We have pro- projects going on all the time, and we continue to grow and hire people and um, do our best to make opportunities uh, for people, especially especially if you're interested in, in sensory and tasting coffee and um think that you have the kind of the get yourself in that headspace where you can just come into the back of the building every day and taste a million coffees uh yeah keep your eye on on all that stuff and and then you know you know turn your brain on when you're tasting food or drinking wine or having a beer or you know if you smell something that is that's sensory you taste something that's that sensory it doesn't have to be a uh like a movie montage of <laughs> training and whatever you know it's just you're always sensing you're always tasting it's really a question of turning your brain on while you're doing that uh and even if you don't come work for cafe imports uh that with a little like directed study in in uh the way that sensory scientists do things can take you a very very long way and and really prep you for uh, what you might get to do anywhere. Well, Ian, I, I just want to say thank you. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, again, when I saw your study, I, I thought it was just a, a really unique approach uh, to something that a, a lot of people in the industry seem really interested in. And I think this will be really insightful to our listeners. So thank you so much for coming on the show. We we really appreciate you. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was really it fascinating to do the study and it's really gratifying that uh, after a handful of years here people are still finding it and reaching out to me people still you know uh, partners of ours coffee producers of ours still come up to me and say oh yeah i read the i read the study (laughs) okay (laughs) i had uh, no idea that's what i was doing when i when i did that and so this is this is wonderful and i I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to uh, chat with you today Great. Thank you, Ian. We'll see you again. I'm Zachary Cartwright. This is Water and Food. 
Find this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.